Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. Five Villains from History The Burning House Debate In this talk we hear about five villainous people and only one can be saved from the burning house. Three of our subjects featured in a New York Post poll of the 25 worst villains in history. Another appears in many other lists and one is a villain to some but a hero to others. Be warned, all five of our subjects were responsible for the death of many people, some in very unpleasant ways. First, Jenny Staple tells us about Vlad III, also known as Vlad the Impaler. When Lorna suggested that I would like to do a segment today, I went home and Googled Villery. Imagine my amazement when what popped up was Norman Bates, Darth Vader and the Widow and the Wicked Witch of the West. Then put in dead villains in history and got Vlad the Impaler, Stalin and Hitler. Though when I did it last week, it had changed to Stalin Hitler. When I mentioned this to a friend who insists he's not deaf, he asked why I was doing a talk on bladder failure. Why I was doing a talk on bladder failure. Those who think I'm doing a talk on bladder failure will be disappointed and possibly a little confused. Vlad Dracula, 28, 29, 30 or 31, but definitely in January. In Transylvania, 30 or 31, but definitely in January. In Transylvania and was the second son of Vlad Dracula II. His mother was thought to have been either the daughter or kinswoman of Alignan, meant Vlad the Dragon, which acknowledged his membership of the Order of the Dragon, a militant fraternity founded by the Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund. The Order of the Dragon was dedicated to halting the Ottoman advance in Europe. In modern Romanian, Dracula halting the Ottoman advance in Europe. In modern Romanian, Dracul means Stoker to using the name for his character Dracula. Vlad's father, Vlad II, to using the name for his character Dracula. Vlad's father, Vlad II, warlord and ruled over the area, though it was technically overseen by the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Wallachia is a geographical region of the southern part of Romania. Then it was north of the Lower Danube and south of the southern Carpathian Mountains. Please forgive my pronunciations, but I'm counting on the fact that no one listening was around in the 1400s, so we don't actually know how they pronounce things. So I could be correct. In 1442, the Ottoman Sultan Murad II, so I could be correct. In 1442, the Ottoman Sultan Murad II, to him, which then enabled Vlad to govern Wallachia as he saw fit. He had no desire to pay this, but went with two of his sons, Vlad and his younger brother, Radu. They were all promptly arrested and imprisoned. The father was released before the end of the year, but the son... They were all promptly arrested and imprisoned. 
The father was released before the end of the year, but the sons remained hostages for five years to secure his loyalty. Radio Glad, needless to say, caused trouble the whole time and as a result was constantly tortured. This led to a lifelong hatred of the Turks. Their lives were constantly in danger, especially after their father was tortured. This led to a lifelong hatred of the Turks. Their lives were constantly in danger. Varna. He was convinced the boys had been butchered, so he saw no reason not to do so. An empire during the crusade of Varna. He was convinced the boys had been butchered. It controls the policies of another, but allows them to have internal autonomy and agreed to pay it yearly. The boys were then released. Vlad and his oldest son, Mercia, were murdered in 1447 by local boyars, noblemen or warlords. Vlad was killed behind their home and his son, Mercia, was tortured, blinded and buried alive. As a result, Vlad's cousin became Voivode of Wallachia. He tried to grab power in 1448 with the help of the hated Ottomans. As a result, Vlad's cousin became Voivode of Wallachia. He tried to grab needed. There are quite a few letters about him. He was described in one thus. Vlad was with the Hungarian support. He finally succeeded. There are quite a few letters about him. He was described in one thus. Vlad was framed large, wide-eyed, green eyes. Bushy black eyebrows made them appear threatening. His face and chin were shaven, but for a moustache. The swollen temple increased the bulk of his head. A bull's neck connected with his head, from which black curly locks hung to his knee. His face and chin were shaven, but for a moustache. The swollen temple increased the... He inherited a divided country. The position of the country had one specific problem. The Muslim is wide-shouldered person. A very, I suppose in those days, handsome fellow. He inherited a divided country. The position of the country had one specific problem of his territory trampling through the country, stealing grain, cattle, and men. How was he? And the Christians were crossing Romania to try and convert the Muslims in the east, normally meeting in the middle of his territory, trampling through the country, stealing grain, cattle, and men. How was he to unite his country? That did a great change and utterly revolutionized the affairs of Wallachia. That done, he then invited all his political rivals and nobles that were still standing to a banquet where he put some suggestions to them for the future of the country. He then asked who was with him and who was nice to the affairs of Wallachia. That done, he then invited all his political rivals. It was said that there were about 5,000 of them, but more likely about 100. On another occasion, he had an enormous wooden barn built and invited all the poor, the disabled and the sick people in the region to a banquet where he plied them with drink and food. Then not the, about 5,000 of them, but more likely about 100. On another occasion, we're here. Now he was Voivode of Wallachia, the Sultan, now Mehmed II, Radu's friend from imprisonment, insisted on having the tribute paid every year, as was the case with his father. But again, he wanted Vlad to pay it in person. He refused. Now he was Voivode of Wallachia, the Sultan, now Mehmed II, Radu's friend, knowing that their religion forbade them to remove their turbans outside their own homes, he insisted they remove them. They explained why they wouldn't do so. He praised them for their principles and promptly got six stout nails and nailed their turbans to their heads. Not surprisingly, they died. Mehmed sent more envoys, but they suffered the same fate. 
the tribute was never paid. He removed them. They explained why they wouldn't do so. He praised them for their principles and promptly got six stout nails and nailed their turbans to their heads. Not surprisingly, they died. Mehmed sent more envoys, but they suffered the same fate. The tribute was never paid. Now impaling has been mentioned, we should say exactly what it is. Fingers and ears for those of a nervous disposition. A long piece of stick or piece of steel, I would have been the impaler. He would impale men, women and children. Was also keen on boiling alive, skinning, disemboweling and roasting on the spit. There are other things as well. But if you can bleak it, come out of the person's mouth. But I'm not sure how easy that could be. Would think it was a little tricky. Haven't practiced it though, because nobody was willing to assist me. I would have been the impaler. He would impale men, women and children. Was also keen on boiling alive, skinning, disemboweling and roasting on the spit. There are other things as well. Faith. When Mehmed heard this, he and his army of 150,000 arrived. Vlad was massively outnumbered. He had about 50,000 men. So he adopted a scorched earth policy, burning everything in his path as he retreated. When the Ottomans advanced towards the capital, they were horrified by what they found. A forest of the impaled, the strengthening of the Catholic faith. When Mehmed heard this, he and his army of a time, the Sultan's army entered into the area of impalements, which was 17 stades long and seven stades wide. A stade is about 175 yards long. About 20. When the Ottomans advanced towards the capital, they were horrified by what they found. A forest of the impaled, thousands of stakes with the carcasses of the impaled on. It was written at the time, the Sultan's arm and his realm and its people. And he added that a man who had done such things was worth much. The stade is about 175 yards long. About 20,000 men Sultan, the battle started at night and went on for four hours. Vlad allegedly lost only 5,000 men, the Sultan 15,000. This battle is now celebrated in Romanian literature and popular folklore. I'm not sure why, but Vlad then went and its people, and he added that a man who had done such things was worth much. In another battle known as the Night Attack in June 1462, when they were trying to capture the Sultan, Vlad took it back and was void void for about a year. He died on the 18th of January, 1476, having been ambushed by the Sultan's men, was decapitated and his head sent in Romanian literature and popular folklore. I'm not sure why, but Vlad lived at the time as a demented psychopath, a sadist, a gruesome murderer, a massacre who died. He'd been keeping the Voivoid seat warm in Wallachia in his brother's. The name Impaler was well-deserved. Vlad's cruelty was renowned even during his own lifetime. The 18th of January, 1476, having been ambushed by the Sultan's men, was decapitated and his head sent as a trophy to Sultan Mehmed II. He was under 50. Vlad was described at the time as a demented psycho, ruthless to his enemies. He helped to rebuild and stabilize his country. So why should you save him, you might ask? The name Impaler was well-deserved, helped him to hold on to power. His enemies feared him, but his people looked upon him as a hero and a saint. His fearful reputation made sure there was public order. It is said, field, impaling was a gruesome method of execution, but it also acted as a touch it. 
Despite his terrible reputation, he hated anyone stealing or doing anything evil. I wonder if he ever thought of that whilst looking in the mirror. In 1999, Inan had seen upheaval and warfare. His reputation and ruthlessness helped him as a model of courage and patriotism, as one of the most historical people who have influenced the saint. His fearful reputation made sure there was public order. It is said, thank you. Well, a leap forward in history to the 1960s, which I'm sure all of you will remember. And how many of you got up? I wonder if you ever thought of that whilst looking in the mirror. In 1990... Very, very right-wing audience in that case. Was he a villain? Was he a hero? Paler as a model of courage and patriotism as one of the most historical people who have influenced the destiny of the Romanians for the better. Was it nature or nurture? Who knows? Now Ian Wallace tells the story of Che Guevara, hero to some, villain to others. Well, a leap forward in history to the 1960s, which I'm sure all of you will remember, and how many of you got up in the morning and said, Che Guevara? Nobody? Well, I'm obviously talking to a, a very, very right-wing audience in that case. Was he a villain? Was he a hero? Well, a very controversial figure. From the point of view of the USA and other capitalist countries, he was definitely a villain. But from the point of view of the peasant class, in South America, the Caribbean and other parts, he was definitely a hero. So we'll have to decide, won't we? Che was born as Ernesto Guevara, and his middle name was Lynch. Now, Lynch was from his Irish ancestry. A lot of Irish went over to South America during the Troubles and the famine and so on. So he was actually partly Spanish, partly Irish. And I think his oratory probably comes from the Irish connection. He was born in 1928 in Buenos Aires, Argentina. He trained as a doctor and worked in Argentina, in Guatemala, and in Mexico City. As a medical student, he took nine months off to travel around South America on a motorcycle. And his experiences of the poverty, the exploitation of the peasants, the hunger, the disease, the lack of education that he encountered, and the exploitation of the working class generally, was all recorded in a book that he was later published called The Motorcycle Diaries. And so he records a lot of this. And this was really a very seminal event in his life, because he really did see what was going on. I wish I had, as a medical student, I'd had time to take nine months off and go off on a motorcycle trip. He found that really the capitalist exploitation, particularly by USA companies, was the real cause. And the only solution was a, a communistic revolution. Now, in 1955, while he was working in Mexico City as a doctor, he met up with Fidel Castro and Raul Castro, who were plotting a revolution in various other countries in South America and the Caribbean. 
like Venezuela and Guatemala to overthrow the regimes there. And Fidel Castro and Raul Castro brought him in to their circle. And their next idea was to overthrow the government of Batista in Cuba, because Fidel Castro and Raul Castro were Cuban. And so in 1955, they were plotting this next adventure. In 1956, the revolutionaries set off in a leaky old boat called Grandma, and they somehow thought that if they joined up with underground forces in Cuba, that they would overthrow the regime. Well, it was a disaster. But somehow, they managed to regroup in the Sierra Maestra area of Cuba. The Sierra Maestra is a great big sort of huge cliff area. When I was in Cuba some years ago, we went to that area, it's very beautiful. It's fairly cut off and they managed to regroup and form a community of people who were of their own persuasion. Fidel Castro himself was very much the front man, the leader, but he left a lot of things to organize. He was named Il Comandante. So he was like the second in command. So they organized self-sufficient housing, arming, schools, weapons training, and health service. In fact, there was a really tremendous job hiding in the mountains, preparing for a battle that was bound to happen. So in 1958, they were ready to take on the government forces of the Batista regime. And in the Battle of Santa Clara, to the east of Havana, in spite of the fact they were outnumbered 10 to 1, Castro's army routed the Batista forces. It was an amazing battle. And then the communist takeover took place. There were a lot of reprisals. I'm afraid there were a lot of firing squads, and there were a lot of paying back old scores, which you might say is the downside of Che Guevara, was he hero, was he villain? It was in 59 and the 60, Che Guevara went on a mission to many countries in the communist bloc. He wanted to establish a sort of international communistic revolution so that Cuba could be part of it and join in as a sort of trade bloc. So he went to Yugoslavia, Hungary, Romania, Russia, obviously, to gain support for Cuba. He went to Paris, and of course, at that time, he met and charmed Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. Anyhow, they found him very, very eloquent and very charming. After that, in 1961, Khrushchev in Russia decided that they could have Cuba as part of a trade agreement in South America and the Caribbean. And as a sort of bargaining chip, they decided that it would be a very good idea to place some nuclear missiles in Cuba aimed, of uh, course, at New York. The next thing we have is quite suddenly, the Americans discover these missiles trained on them. And this is, of course, the origins of the Cuban Missile Crisis. It shook the world altogether, because if the Russians were going to hold the Americans to ransom by Cuba, what were the Americans going to do in reply? 
at that particular moment, we remember, of course, that John F. Kennedy was elected president and he had a very difficult hand to manage. Was he going to threaten the Russians in return or was there going to be some kind of accord? In the middle of all this, Che Guevara was obviously trying to get the maximum leverage out of the situation. And in the end, as we know, there was an agreement that NATO would withdraw certain missiles trained on Russia in return for removing the missiles from Cuba. John F. Kennedy had a very difficult hand to manage, but disaster was averted. Following this, there was an attempted invasion of Cuba by Cuban exiles backed by the Americans. And there was another battle called the Battle of the Bay of Pigs, with the exiles trying their best with the aid of the Americans to defeat the Castro regime. This was defeated. Following the missile crisis, there was a trade ban by the Americans on Cuba. And of course, this was very, very difficult. So they could not import cars, machinery, aeroplanes, pharmaceuticals, fertilizers, all kinds of things. Cuba had to be very self-sufficient. When we were in Cuba in the 1990s, it was still amazing that the only transport was old battered Chevrolets and Buicks and everything was creaking. They couldn't get pharmaceuticals, so Che Guevara organized gardens, rather like the Chelsea Physic Garden, for example. They had gardens for herbs of medicinal use, like Kinkona, Echinacea, Belladonna, because this was the only thing they could do. They couldn't get supplies from other places. Self-sufficiency was very much on the watch for so in 1964 and 5, Che resigned from all posts in Cuba. Quite suddenly, he decided to leave and do a world tour to try and foster communistic revolutions in other countries. He did visits to Russia, obviously, North Vietnam, Indonesia, and he went to various countries in Africa. He supported Nelson Mandela, for example, and probably the only country that he had persuaded was Tanzania and the regime of Julius Nyerere, which is near as modeled on the Cuban, what they call Uhuru, which is we all work together. Nobody owns the land, the land is owned by the people. If you compare Kenya with Tanzania, I'm afraid the productivity is about a fifth of Kenya as a result. But never mind, that's what the communistic revolution produced in Africa. He tried very hard to have a revolution in the Congo against the regime of Mobutu, but that was a dead failure. He could not get Africans to agree on anything. This was one of his challenges, as he found in the Congo. But he tried his best. Now, in 1966, having done his world tour, he was trying to stimulate revolution. He was back in Cuba and then decided that he must go to South America and carry on his revolutionary ideas. 
At this time, he was followed secretly by the CIA, who eventually caught up with him in Bolivia, where he was helping to perform a guerrilla army with a view to another revolution similar to Cuba. They caught up with him eventually in the Bolivian mountains near a place called Valle Grande. He was surrounded and eventually was shot by a firing squad. Before they killed him, he stood up and said, go on, shoot me. I'm only a man. And that was his last words. And that was in 1967. He wrote two books. One is the Manual of Guerrilla Warfare, 1962, and the Motorcycle, 1952. So the inscription, which I remember in Havana, reads as follows. Hasta la victoria, siempre. Until victory, always. So I give you Che Guevara. Now Michael Abair tells us about Idi Amin, a pretty rotten person in his opinion. Now, the reason why I chose Idi Amin is not only that he's a rotter, but some years ago, I became very friendly with a chap who was one of the 30,000 who were kicked out of Uganda. And he and I were, I suppose you'd call us best friends, went everywhere together, did everything together, great mates. His father had been managing director of a big import-export company. Very, very powerful man in Uganda and a real good chap. And he and his wife and a young lad were kicked out. My friend Vimal went to school in Britain, very quickly became head boy and went to work for his family, who by then were running an all-hours convenience store. They all put in enormous hours there. And in fact, both V and his father died through sheer overwork at ridiculously young ages. Idi Amin Dada Ume was born around 1925. Nobody knows exactly where or exactly when, but various stories persist. There are great discrepancies over it all. His father had converted from Roman Catholicism to Islam, and he named his first son Idi Amin Dada, then immediately walked out on the family and left the mother to bring up, well, I was going to say little Edie, he wasn't very little, young Edie, and she and her family did their best. He left school with a very limited education and was then recruited into the British colonial army, the King's African Rifles, in 1946 as an assistant cook. And an assistant cook in those days had to do a certain amount of military training, a very limited amount. I imagine it was just a bit of square bashing. His claim to have served in the British army in the Burma campaign in World War II was completely fictitious. In 1947, that's a year after he joined the army. He was transferred to Kenya for military service against the Mau Mau rebels. He was promoted to corporal in 1949 and probably should have stayed there. Then in 1953, he reached the lofty heights of sergeant. 
he was made a class two warrant officer in 1959 and was still fighting against the Mau Mau. Then he returned to Uganda in 1961 and was actually made a lieutenant, one of only two Africans to be commissioned officers. His role in the army was entirely against cattle rustling. That was the extent of it. In the following year, 1962, Uganda gained independence from Britain. By then, he was in the Ugandan army. He was promoted to captain, and then the next year to major. In 1970, he was promoted to command the Ugandan armed forces, the commander of all forces. He was six foot four and powerfully built. He boxed at light heavyweight and apparently played rugby for Nile Rugby Club. He claimed he played in their match against the British Lions in 1955. The unfortunate thing is that the team photo doesn't seem to include him. It was generally accepted that he was very, very strong, but that he was only bone above the neck. In 1965, the Prime Minister of Uganda, Milton Obote, was implicated in a plot to smuggle ivory and gold into Uganda. Idi Amin took over the country in a military coup on the 25th of January, 71, while Obote was attending a Commonwealth meeting in Singapore. Obote was admittedly investigating Amin for corruption at that time. Amin purged the army of Obote supporters. And by July 1972, some 5,000 soldiers had disappeared. Most of their bodies were found in the River Nile. There were also an awful lot of civilians who disappeared at that time. Figures vary between about 300,000 and about half a million. I think most people sway towards the half million mark. Again, a lot of their bodies were dumped in the Nile as well. Idi Amin said, we are determined to make the ordinary Ugandan master of his own destiny and to see that he enjoys the wealth of his country. Our deliberate policy is to transfer the economic control of Uganda into the hands of Ugandans. All very fine words. But in August 72, Idi Amin set down a series of policies to take over the properties and businesses owned by Asians and Europeans, including my friends, the Majarias. Over 80,000 Asians lost their homes and businesses, and all British passport holders, about 30,000, came to Britain, with only a few going to other Commonwealth countries. Whilst at first Idi Amin was supported by several major powers, including Great Britain, I think the general attitude was, well, he is a bonehead, but at least he's our bonehead. He was thought to be very loyal to Britain at that time, that is, until 1972. When in 1972 he visited Gaddafi in Libya, he managed to borrow a lot of money from him for arms, and then things started changing. In June 1976, the Entebbe hijacking took place. There was an Air France aircraft flying from Tel Aviv to Paris, and the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine and German revolutionaries seized the aircraft and landed it in Uganda. And a few of the passengers got killed, incredibly small number, but still too many, and 
Also, one of the commandos who stormed the airport and saved the passengers, the son of the future prime minister of Israel. A couple of years later, in November 1978, there was an attempted coup by army officers who were killed ruthlessly by Idi Amin. This led to great dissatisfaction in the army. Amin was forced to seek exile in Saudi Arabia, where he lived fairly quietly and peacefully and died from kidney failure on the 16th of August 2003, aged around about 78. After his death, Dr. David Owen admitted that he had proposed having him assassinated, which seems a rather strange thing to hear that a doctor was saying, let alone the Foreign Secretary of Britain. He said, I'm not ashamed of considering it because his regime was one of the worst in Africa. He, I mean, had at least six wives, one of whom survived him and ended up as a hairdresser in Tottenham in North London. Most of the others died rather mysteriously. She died only a very few years ago. He had an unknown number of children, thought to be about 60, that really is the story of Idi Amin. Chairman Mao is the subject of Alan Freeland's talk. Before I start, Mao Zedong would like to say a few words personally. I know you know me, the world's greatest leader. I rescued China from being split up by Western, Russian and Japanese imperial powers. I was the great visionary that established the concept of the leader's thoughts that even today Xi Jinping is trying to emulate. I put China on the path to being once again the world's greatest superpower, and I gave a quarter of the world's population something to be proud of. I hope, and I expect all of you frequently seek inspiration from my little red book. I shall read you something from here. Our duty is to hold ourselves responsible to the people. Every word, every act, and every policy must conform to the people's interests. And if mistakes occur, they must be corrected. That is what being responsible to the people means. Johnson, I wouldn't even let him set foot in my country. You may not know that unlike your privileged bourgeoisie leaders from their Oxbridge colleges, bred to believe they're above the law, but then accomplish nothing. I was a poor boy from a poor family that created something from nothing. So let Alan tell you my remarkable story. So I think we're all aware of some of the humanitarian disasters that were caused by Mao's dictatorship. But today, I'm just going to focus on what a remarkable man he was and why you should save him from this horrendous fire. Mao had a hugely perceptive understanding of history, both Chinese and European history. He knew how to make change happen and he understood political cause and effect. So if you're interested in philosophy, social history, political history, or military history, you'll want to talk to Mao. If you think Robin Hood was a good guy, redistributing wealth, if you think Victorian social reformers such as Octavia Hill and our own William Cobbett worked selfishly for the well-being of others, you'll want to understand how Mao was doing the same in China. Mao also saw patriarchy as one of the four evil regimes that oppress people, and he changed the culture to give women equal rights in many spheres. Mao was born in 1893 and was indeed born to a poor peasant household in a village of 300 households in the impoverished central state of Hunan. China is a huge country and the Hunan province alone is the size of Great Britain. 
These were the dying days of the Manchu Qing dynasty. The Qing had failed to modernize and China was an incredibly backward country compared to Europe, Russia, America, and Japan. China had to cede territory to Japan, to Russia, to France, to Germany, and of course to Britain with the ceding of Hong Kong. And when Mao was eight, as a result of the Boxer Rebellion, the Chinese government agreed to further humiliating terms, such as the public execution of all Chinese that attacked any of the 11 nations whose citizens had been hurt by the rebellion. This included the USA, Britain, France, Germany, Russia, Italy, Belgium, Spain, Netherlands, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and Japan. Foreign troops were to be allowed to be stationed in 12 Chinese cities. All public anti-foreigner activity was to be banned, and millions and millions of reparations was to be paid over the next 40 years. These are all part of what China calls its century of humiliation from 1839 to 1949. Throughout the 4,000 or so years of Chinese history, and true to this day, is the dominance of authoritarian power over human rights. China has never had democracy, an independent judiciary, or respect for human rights, and rarely has China had a free press. Much of Mao's early life was during the period known as the warlord era. There was no rule of law. Local warlords ruled in their own interest. So who was Mao? Through sheer hard work and thrift, Mao's father became one of the less poor, poor peasant farmers. He produced enough food to feed his family in a small surplus. He could afford to send Mao to the local school. School consisted of learning Chinese classic texts by rote and being beaten when you forgot a piece. Mao's favorite subject was history, and all through his life, Mao devoured books. His father also beat him. Mao learned that when he was weak and submissive, he got beaten even harder. When he rebelled against his father, his father relented. These were life lessons. When Mao was 13, his father demanded that he give up school to work on the farm. Mao rebelled. When Mao was 14, his father arranged for Mao to marry. Mao rebelled, and he left home. Mao managed to get into a middle school, and despite his pig-headedness and his argumentative nature, he did well at school, particularly literature, history, and poetry. Mao went to secondary school in Hunan's capital city of Changsha, and at that time, the Hunanese never accepted the Manchu overlords, and now the students sought revolution. This was Mao's indoctrination into politics. Mao decided, like thousands of others, to join a revolutionary army. Most of the soldiers were illiterate, and he became popular writing letters home for the soldiers. After the army, Mao enrolled on a teacher training course. It required no fees and came with cheap board and lodgings. Mao is such a thought-provoking character. He devoured books, especially on the great men of the world. He learned about George Washington, William Gladstone, Napoleon Bonaparte, Abraham Lincoln, and Catherine and Peter the Great in Russia. He read, in translation, Western books on political rule including Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, books by Darwin and Thomas Huxley, and he learned about liberalism from John Stuart Mill. Charles Darwin's thesis of survival of the fittest gave an added reason for the Chinese to modernize. In one diary entry from the 1920s, Mao presently wrote, thus the invasion of France by the Holy Alliance in 1790 contained within it the seeds of Napoleon's rise. Napoleon's subjugation of Prussia created the conditions for the French defeat of 1870, which in turn paved the way for Germany's defeat in 1918. Nor would it end there. The harshness of the conditions imposed by the Allies at Versailles made another cycle of conflict inevitable. I guarantee, Mao wrote, that in 10 or 20 years, you Frenchmen will yet again have a splitting headache. 
mark my words, now saw firsthand civil war, mass murders and tortures as rulers tried to eliminate any opposition and stay in power. In Mao's state of Hunan, Governor Tang, known as Butcher Tang, was only in power for three years, but killed around 10,000 civilians. Governor Zhang, known as Zhang the Venomous, was a cruel and sadistic dictator who killed and tortured people and killed cattle and destroyed crops. The only way to get food was to inform on your friends. And just to illustrate the harshness of life, one way the Chinese were executed during the period that Mao was growing up, by hanging from the neck so you slowly suffocated. At the age of 23, he was voted Student of the Year and Head of the Student Society. His articles for the national paper, The New Youth, were the first to have been published by a student from Hunan. And as part of the college's outreach program, he organized evening education classes for the largely uneducated local workers. When Mao received his teaching diploma, he got a job in Beijing as a university librarian. But his provincial manners, his dialect, and his lack of status meant he was humiliated by those in power and authority. He joined philosophical societies and debated different political ideologies, including anarchism and Marxism. Mao set about trying to create industrial unions and to improve factory conditions, which were absolutely appalling, much worse than Dickensian. A couple of examples for you. At a local coal mine, gas explosions and black lung disease killed many miners each year. One time, the mine owners refused to pay the workers the back pay they were owed. Through Mao's school at the mine, the miners were encouraged to strike. They were successful in getting a pay rise, union recognition, improved holidays, and an end to a practice whereby middle-ranking managers creamed off part of the miners' salary for themselves. The workers were denied their agreed annual bonus, and a riot broke out. The mill owner called for help from the military governor, who got the men back to work by using machine guns. Three workers were killed. Two officials from Mao's organisation helped negotiate an agreement, which included the workers being paid their bonus. But the mill owner, in disgust, had the two arbitrators beheaded. Such was life in China, during the period that Mao was a young man. Another time, a drought was causing famine in the village where Mao was living. The peasants petitioned for the local granaries to be opened, but were told that rice would fetch a higher price in the capital of Shanksa, so none was released. The village authorities were threatened with hoes and bamboo poles, and the landlords were forced to sell their rice to the peasants. This was a tiny victory, for within days, all over Hunan, the scene was repeated. The military governor for Hunan ordered the immediate arrest and execution of Mao Zedong. Mao, at the age of 31, was now an outlaw and a fugitive in his home state. Apart from championing social welfare reform, he had done nothing criminal or amoral. When Chiang Kai-shek, in a military coup, took over the ruling Nationalist Party, his military campaigns reunited most of China, and with this success, he decided to get rid of the communists. Just in Mao's Hunan province, 300,000 supposed communists were killed. After the purge, Mao was sent to Hunan as communist secretary in order to rebuild party infrastructure and membership. Mao traveled and spoke to peasant groups and encouraged them to seek lower interest rates and negotiate for higher wages. He produced a report for the Communist Central Party, which became famous for its intellectual rigor, analytical content and comprehensiveness. It ran to 20,000 words and was called Report on the Peasant Movement in Hunan. This report was pivotal in putting the peasants at the heart of the communist revolution. Mao was now convinced the time was right for revolution and he was clear with the party and he told them, a revolution is not like inviting people to dinner or writing an essay. 
or painting a picture or doing embroidery, it cannot be so refined, so leisurely and gentle, so benign, upright, courteous, temperate and complacent. A revolution is an uprising, an act of violence whereby one class overthrows the power of another. If the peasants do not use extremely great force, they cannot possibly overthrow the deeply rooted power of the landlords, which has lasted for thousands of years. To put it bluntly, it is necessary to bring about a brief reign of terror in every rural area to right a wrong. It is necessary to exceed the proper limits. The wrong cannot be righted without doing so. Mao was now 33 and he was no longer a social reformer, but a revolutionary and convinced that force was the only way to achieve social reform. And because it was the only way, it was justified. As Mao worked his way up the Communist Party hierarchy, both as a political and military leader, Mao frequently proposed courses of action which were the opposite of what the party wanted. Six times he was sidelined and demoted, but each time events proved Mao right, and each time he was brought back with increased power. He became their most successful military strategist. Unlike the military custom at the time, Mao decided that his army would be a volunteer army. There would be no coercion. If you wanted to leave, you'd be free to do so. Soldiers were to be treated fairly. Beatings by officers were banned. Civilians were to be treated with respect and were to be given a fair price for whatever the army needed. And Mao himself was often accused of not burning and killing enough for not turning the petty bourgeoisie into the proletariat. But he was successful and gradually his ideas were accepted. To escape the nationalist soldiers, Mao led the remnants of the Red Army 5,000 miles for every year to safety in what has become known as the Long March. And it was during this time that Mao effectively became the leader of the Chinese Communist Party. For their own reasons, America and Russia supported the nationalists. So in his fight to rule China, Mao was fighting the nationalists, the Americans, the Russians and the Japanese, and of course, usurpers in his own party. What other leader has been so successful against such odds? Mao set up a Red Army University where he lectured on political and military affairs. The syllabus covered the evolution of European philosophy and the struggle between materialism and idealism in Europe. Eventually, Mao's army defeated the nationalists. And on October the 1st, 1949, Mao mounted the gate of heavenly peace overlooking Tiananmen Square in Beijing and formally announced the founding of the People's Republic of China. And Mao continued to rule China until his death at age 82 in 1976. During his premiership, the population of China grew from around 500 million to over 900 million. And Mao represents those that love history. He stands for equal rights for women. He stands for teachers, for librarians and social reformers. So if you want to know more about Mao's four marriages, his 10 children, the anti-rightist campaign, the Great Leap Forward, the socialist education movement and the cultural revolution, and yes, how such a nice boy from such a poor family was responsible for the death of around 50 million Chinese, you better save now so his voice can be heard at a later class. Thank you. And finally, Tim Davis tells us about the Reverend Jim Jones, who was responsible for the deaths of 909 of his followers as he persuaded them to take poison. Do you remember Jim Jones? Well, Jim Jones, a vicar, was born on May the 13th, 1931 in Crete in Indiana. And he asked me to plead for him. In my time, I was an American cult leader, a political activist, a preacher and a faith healer, a truly good person. 
I led the People's Temple for 23 years between 1955 and 1978, nearly half of my life. My father was a disabled World War I veteran. We had little money, and in 1934, we were evicted from our home for mortgage arrears. We then lived in a shack without plumbing or electricity. And although we tried to farm, we often lacked food and relied on financial support from our extended family. We also foraged in nearby forest and fields to supplement our diet. My mother had no natural maternal instincts and frequently neglected me. When I started school, our relatives threatened to cut off their financial assistance unless my mother got a job. This forced her to go out to work. My father was hospitalized multiple times due to his illness. So my parents were often away and I was left in the care of neighbors and relatives. Myrtle Kennedy, the wife of the Nazarene church's pastor, developed a special attachment for me. She gave me a Bible and taught me to follow the holiness code of the Nazarene church. As I grew older, I went to most of the local churches, often more than once a week, and I was baptized in several of them. I developed a desire to become a preacher and began preaching in private. Our neighbors said that I was an unusual child, obsessed with religion and death, because my interest in religion and social doctrines led me to study Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Karl Marx, Mao Zedong, and Mahatma Gandhi. I suppose I was ready to kill by the end of the third grade. Nobody gave me love or understanding. In high school, I always carried my Bible with me and I frequently confronted others for drinking beer, smoking and dancing. I began working as an orderly at Richmond's Reed Hospital in 1946 and began dating a trainee nurse called Marceline Baldwin. When I was at Indiana University, I was impressed by a speech by Eleanor Roosevelt about African-Americans, and I began to support communism. I married Marceline on June the 12th, 1949. We argued about church because Marceline was a Methodist and they operated racial segregation. We moved to Indianapolis in 1951, and I began attending Communist Party meetings. My family was harassed by the authorities, and I asked myself, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? My thought was, infiltrate the church. I decided to become a Methodist minister, and I was hired as a student pastor and launched a project to create a playground open to children of all races. In early 1954, I was dismissed by the Methodist church, who accused me of stealing church funds. In 1953, I'd been to a Pentecostal convention where a woman prophesied that I was a prophet with a great ministry. I then began attending and preaching at the Laurel Street Tabernacle, part of the Assemblies of God, holding healing revivals there until 1955. The Assemblies of God was strongly opposed to healing revivals, so I left and established the Wings of Healing, which later became the People's Temple. Many believed I possessed a supernatural gift and the People's Temple grew rapidly. In 1960, the People's Temple joined the Disciples of Christ. 
Some years later, in 1974 and 77, the disciples' leadership received allegations of abuse at the People's Temple. They investigated but found no evidence. We were found to be an exemplary Christian ministry, overcoming human differences and dedicated to human services. We gave them $1.1 million between 1966 and 1977. In 1960, the Indianapolis mayor appointed me as a director of the local Human Rights Commission. During my time as a commission director, we racially integrated churches, restaurants, the telephone company, the police department, a theater, an amusement park, and the Indiana <coughs> University Health Methodist Hospital. I set up sting operations to catch restaurants which refused to serve black customers and wrote to the American Nazi party leaders and passed their responses to the media. In 1961, when I collapsed, the hospital accidentally placed me in its black ward. I refused to be moved and political pressures led to the hospital desegregating the wards once I'd left. I was criticized frequently for my integrationist views. We were a target for white supremacists. A swastika was placed on the temple. A stick of dynamite was left in a temple coal pile and a dead cat was thrown at my house. We adopted several non-white children and I referred to my household as a rainbow family. I also portrayed the temple as a rainbow family. In 1961, I warned my congregation that I'd received visions of a nuclear attack devastating Indianapolis. I began to look for a way to avoid the destruction. And in January 1962, I read an article saying that South America was the safest place to live to escape any nuclear war. So I went to South America to scout for a site. Whilst I was away, regular attendance at the People's Temple declined to less than 100. And when I got home, I found the members bitterly divided. So I had to sell the church and relocate to a smaller building nearby. I returned to the revival circuit to raise money. During 1964, I visited California to find somewhere to relocate. In July 1965, we moved to Redwood Valley with about 140 followers. I recruited 50 new members in the first few months. And in 1967, another 75 members from the old Indianapolis congregation moved to California. I was able to influence Disciples of Christ members, including Lyndon Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover. I developed apostolic socialism because traditional Christianity has an incorrect view of God. Christianity is a flyaway religion and the Bible a tool to oppress women and non-whites. I warned of an apocalyptic nuclear race war. I taught my followers that the only way to escape the catastrophe is to accept my teachings. I've always couched my socialist views in religious terms. My communist views could cost me the support of political leaders and risk the people's temple being ejected from the disciples of Christ. We could lose our tax exempt status and might have to report our financial dealings to the Internal Revenue Service. I taught my followers that the ends justify the means and authorize them to achieve my vision by any means necessary. Some 
have alleged that I didn't really believe my teachings, that I was morally bankrupt and only manipulating religion to achieve my own selfish ends. How unfair. I'd been accused of using illicit drugs after moving to California and using fear to control my followers because of the enemy seeking to destroy them. Our planning commission directed the communal lifestyle. New members turned over all their assets to the church in exchange for a free room and board. Those who worked on the outside gave their income for the benefit of the community. We set standards for members' sex lives and who could be married. The wives of some members of the church offered themselves to me. Our connections with Californian politicians enabled us to contact key national political figures, and I met privately with vice presidential candidate Walter Mondale days before the 1976 election. I also met on a number of occasions with First Lady Rosalind Carter. We moved to Guyana in 1974, and the People's Temple constructed the Jonestown Commune. Many of my followers joined us there. And we had a social paradise free from the oppression of the United States government. In 1978, people accused me of human rights abuses and said that people were being held in Jonestown against their will. And in November 1978, US Representative Leo Ryan led a delegation to the commune. And whilst boarding a return flight with some former temple members, he and four others were killed by gunmen. It was said they came from Jonestown. We decided on a mass suicide. Some have called it a murder. And my members drank flavor aid laced with cyanide. 909 commune members, 304 of them children, died and went to paradise on November the 18th, 1978. I shot myself and joined them in paradise. I believe it is possible that these events may have influenced societies and your perception of cults. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.